Welcome to Moving Upstream, a podcast by Prevention Institute. We're a national nonprofit with offices in Oakland, Los Angeles, Houston, and Washington, D.C. Each episode, we look closely at a health or equity issue in the news to understand how we got here and to find a healthier, more equitable way forward. I'm Lisa Fujia Parks, and I'm thrilled to speak today with a powerful and brilliant researcher, organizer, mover and shaker, Dr. Asata Richards. Dr. Richards is the director of the Sankofa Research Institute. We're going to talk about the work of the Redefining Youth Justice Coalition and the new Youth Justice Community Reinvestment Fund approved by commissioners in Harris County, Texas in February this year. Dr. Richards, it's an honor to have time with you today. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk about this work. So let's get started. Can you tell us what is this new Youth Justice Community Reinvestment Fund and where are the funds for this new fund coming from? Well, this fund is really about the work of the Coalition to Redefine Harris County Youth Justice ideal and ambitions to eliminate detention and incarceration of young people. We want to make sure that young people are no longer imprisoned. And we want to do that by creating a continuum of care services for the families and youth who are impacted by violence. And ultimately, our goal is to safely keep young people out of custody and in their communities. And this money comes from the General Fund of Harris County. We worked in a partnership with the Justice Administration Department to ask and request $2 million from the General Fund. The additional funds come from unspent dollars of juvenile probation with the idea the more young people we keep out of detention, we can take those funds and reinvest them into communities where young people need to feel safe and their families need to be supported. It's about imagining a system that does not need to support young people or protect young people or protect communities by incarcerating young people. So we believe that that is a strategy that's outdated. And we believe that it's really a strategy that is a result of really the history of enslavement of Black people, people of African descent, and also the, the brutal history of injustice against brown people and brown youth, because we know that the justice system is disproportionately impacting black and brown youth. And we want to really address that systemic, what we believe is racism, to incarcerate our children, to detain our children, versus to support their unmet needs. I really, truly believe that when people have access to the conditions to lead a safe, healthy, and thriving life, they do. And we know that reducing conditions in the community and people's lives that increase the likelihood of violence and investing in the conditions that are known to promote safety works. Rates of violence go down. Community safety goes up. That's what we call a public health approach to community safety. And that's something that Prevention Institute builds with communities and networks across the country. And as you spoke from a racial justice perspective, this is about correcting longstanding injustices from the 
origins of this country that have harmed generationally African-American and other communities of color and other marginalized communities from having access to the same conditions and the same opportunities for many generations. Can you tell our listeners how you and your coalition worked with the commissioners to create this vision and this new fund? Our county judge, Judge Lena Hidalgo, her vision and her commitment to addressing the systemic racism in the system. And so we really took that lead and said, how can we do what we all want, which create safety and security in our communities. And we begin to really build the voice and listen to the voice of communities, residents, impacted youth, impacted parents, but also importantly, organizations and groups that were working in these communities to say, how can we do this together? If we all believe that there is another way, how can we listen to one another and work with one another to see that way? So our coalition really went on its own work and journey to learn about what was some of the national best practices, right? We talked to people all over the country and we happened to talk to people working in justice reform in Colorado and begin to say, what are you doing there? And then the idea, which of course, community reinvestment funds exist in other places, but how did you create chores? What was your intention? Who were your partners? Who were your strategic allies? And so we brought in actually the commissioner staff members to listen, people who worked in juvenile probation, people who worked in organizations that serve youth. And we all learn together. And so we were on a learning path and a path of transformation together, learning new ideas and new ways. And we shared information. We created learning sessions and workshops and memos and documents to really communicate our learnings, but also our vision. And we met and and working with the Justice Administration Department, put together a brief for commissioner staff so that they would be informed of what was happening. We tried to answer any questions. And so when we got to the point of the appropriation hearings for the budget, we used that time to really build upon all the learnings we had done. And then we made sure that the commissioners were supported by their colleagues. So we did a letter of support that included the mayor of the city of Houston, assignee, trustees from school districts, A-Leaf School District, which is disproportionately being impacted by the juvenile justice system. And we had um, organizations and impacted youth and young people sign this letter, over 60 signees onto this letter. And then we made sure that impacted youth and families came to talk to the commissioners, tell their stories, share their understanding, share their passion for this fund, and they began to really speak about that. And I just want to say that was an amazing moment because, one, we were the only group that went to the budget hearings. Nobody else presented at the hearings. Other people presented at the commissioner's meeting to approve the budget, but we wanted to have a long going, ongoing conversation with the commissioners about why this was important and why we needed the full $2 million and a match of 2 million more from the juvenile probation 
department. And so we believe that this is an example. It, it doesn't always happen. And I don't want to romanticize this. It does not always happen because there were some tension points along the way, but we really stayed focused and really said, this is your opportunity to do the right thing with us, right? And we can create a shared vision for this community reinvestment fund. And Lisa, I want to say the important point about the community reinvestment fund is to put those resources into the organizations and groups that are serving young people, right? Who know these young people, who care for these young people and who are closest to supporting them. And so we want young people to see their communities as places of strength and resilience, places where they're loved and cared for and not places that are antagonistic to their aims for their own lives. And so that way we really built a multi-sector relationship and coalition and alliance to get this fund passed. And as you know, it's been COVID-19 and budgets and municipal and, and other government agencies are cutting funds across the board. But this fund did not get cut. The request did not get reduced because there was a real clear understanding that this work must be done despite what other economic challenges that we're experiencing, we cannot continue to underfund communities that serve young people and support young people. Oh my goodness, thank you for breaking that down and just outlining the strategy and all the different elements. And I wanna circle back to this point that you made about the tension points and just like you said, you recognize that communities all over the country have been working on these issues for a long time and facing challenges. It's not that communities haven't been trying to make these changes happen for a long time. Communities have been working at this, but there have been many, many barriers. And you have been able to break through some of that to really seize this moment and create a new direction. I know that many of our listeners are in a place of wanting to make happen what you have made happen with all of your community members and partners. Is there anything that you would say or recommend to people in that position who want to achieve similar results in their communities? Yes, and I also want to take a moment to say we were very fortunate because one of our partners was the Columbia Justice Lab. And the reason why I mention that is because I think many times we we work locally. And I think that we're really passionate about our local work because that's where the experiences, the injustices are happening and we're proximate to them. I would always say, and I think this is the benefit of the Prevention Institute, was really when we were working on this reinvestment fund and building the coalition to support the reinvestment fund, right? Because the reinvestment fund would not have been possible without a coordinated group of people working on this issue, right? Deepening their knowledge, being the champions, being the spokespersons, and also being able to answer questions about why this fund, why now, right? That coalition was essential. Without that organized, engaged group of individuals coming from organizations across 
the city and the county, that it would not have been possible. What was also possible was having the benefit of being able to call my coworkers in Prevention Institute and ask questions about, you know, different challenges we were facing or different goals we were trying to meet and asking, what are your suggestions for how we address this issue? What is your suggestion for engaging more youth or more impacted parents, right? And so we really stood very open and being receptive to ideas that came from other places with the understanding we don't have to recreate the wheel. You know, we can listen to our peers and understand how they overcame a challenge. And so I, I would just say, create those relationships. Make sure you have national partners. We had the Columbia Justice Lab was a strong partner, right? And was able to sometimes talk with juvenile probation and begin to understand some of their concerns and needs and so that we could try to meet those needs, build a shared understanding because the tensions happen. But at the end of the day, what we fundamentally believe that it's about relationship building. We're trying to get you to understand us better so that we understand you better. And it doesn't mean we are not gonna push when we need to push, but we wanna come from a place of shared understanding with the realization we have a common goal and when we're not on the same page, let's be willing to resolve that, see the value in each other. And many times I just wanna say, that goal is really from the public and the private sector seeing the value in the community. That's a shift in power dynamic because now we were sitting at the table with people who are used to sitting at the table by themselves. And that was a new adjustment. And so we were patient, we were consistent, and we called on our allies when we needed them. Help us with this, make a phone call, build a bridge for us so that we get where we want to go, which is at the end of the day, the creation of the Community Investment Fund its first year. And so we did that. And again, not allowing small moments to deter us. It's really just having a laser focus that we're going to get to the end of this and we're going to do what we need to do to work together to get there. And it may be moments where we have a breakdown in communication, right? But be willing to say, you know, what brought us together was this common vision. And so let's stay at the table together until we get it done. Uh, you know, when you were starting off this conversation, I really did have that sense of all the people working on this. And when you said you were bringing people to the table to talk with people who are used to sitting at the table by themselves, that was just such a brilliant visual and metaphor for that you organize folks and the power of doing that and bringing so many voices to that creative decision-making table. So thank you for just lifting up the work of the coalition. So are there specific organizations that were involved that you would like to name? I want to just take time to thank the coordinating team that really was part of organizing the uh, Redefining Harris County Youth Justice Coalition. And those organizations include Pure Justice, Sankofa Research Institute, Urban Community Network, Earl Paul Institute at Texas Southern University, the Public Defender's Office, the Harris County Justice Administration Department, Columbia Justice Lab, and the Burns Institute. Thank them for their dedication and generosity. 
And Lisa, I want to just add, one of the challenges is that coalitions work, and what I've learned from Prevention Institute, is to work as horizontally as possible. Really create the ultimate community engagement set of values, right, where we're doing shared decision-making. And that feels good in the coalition. And you're getting used to this new set of values and norms and ways of being. But that is very counter to the way most public entities operate, very top-down. And so it's, it's a clash of values, behaviors, and norms. And there's some discomfort in that, right? And so I think being open and understanding that you're introducing a way of being, it's like being a vegan. And you come home one day, and you're like, oh, I'm a vegan. You know, and everybody's like, what? You know, well, what can we eat? What can we cook? What are you talking about? That is a big learning curve for people who are locked in a system that's based on power over and not power with. And so being able to understand that those tensions are going to arise because you're going to move slower than them because you need to make sure everyone's engaged, everyone's informed about the decision. You need to work through tension points among the coalition. You need to build trust. You can't operate as fast as the government entity who really is exercising power over who works there, right? You've got to work slower. And so sometimes that's really difficult. And being able to really hold our position and understand the big disconnect that was happening for people because we were working in a very radically different way, power within that power over. And to me, that is being the peace and justice and safety and creating the peace and justice and safety that you say you stand for as you go and correcting those power in balances that create harm in families, in neighborhoods, in communities as you go and not thinking that you can ignore those and somehow end up with a different result. So kudos to you for doing that hard work of culture change and and working all that out as you go. And people do have different cultures and ways of being and ways of communicating and ways of working. And I'm wondering if you have a story or an example that stands out for you where maybe there was a clash of power or culture or language or other issues that you were able to work through that supported the transformative work that you were able to accomplish? I would say that the biggest tension point was, one, I want to acknowledge that this coalition is new and this coalition formed in the midst of the pandemic. And while it was a much needed coalition, it also was difficult for many people because they had been doing this work for so long. And I want to say I am a newcomer into the arena of juvenile justice reform. I'm a researcher. And the reason why I came into this work is because I came in to do community engagement. And that was my really focus point. However, there were a lot of people who had already been in the arena. And of course, as soon as I came to the table, I began to reach out to them and say, are you interested in working on this coalition together? And some people, as well, is normal and expected, 
waited on the sidelines to see what would happen. And other people got involved. But here you are talking about a, a group of newcomers and they are putting together something and being very successful in our initial work. And that feels very difficult to people who've been in the trenches for a long time. And then we were having these partnerships with the Andy Casey Foundation, with the Columbia Justice Lab. And so that felt uneasy. I had to be really exercise patience and understanding. And also because we were introducing also some new ways of being that was different from how they had been. I mean, I had to exercise a lot of patience to work through those tensions of saying, why are we doing it like this? Why are we sitting with system actors, right? We should only be sitting by ourselves. We should not allow them to come to the meetings. There were a lot of ways in which this work happens in other places that we didn't adopt here. That is really like, I'm going to use another food analogy. I really love gumbo. And gumbo is a process of layering ingredients on top of ingredients. And you're not sure if it's all going to work out. You know, you put it in that pot and you don't know what's going to happen, right? But really nurturing that pot and stewing the, the ingredients to really come to this conclusion. And I want to say even about the vegan piece, because what people, when they come to the table and they don't see meat or they don't see the things that they recognize, what their fear is, I won't be sustained. I won't be full. I won't be satisfied, right? Ultimately, what they're saying is that my needs won't be met. And so in the coalition, we had to reaffirm this coalition is here to meet our collective needs, but also care as much as possible for the individual needs of the groups and organizations who come. And so I think it was very affirming to them the fact that the first big initiative we took on was something that could give potential funds to the work that they were doing. That really confirmed that there was a care about what they were doing and the investment they had had in this work. And so for me, I term myself as a person that uses a feminine paradigm of leadership. And that doesn't mean being a female leader. It means having a paradigm of leadership that's about shared needs, shared values, power with, right? A really attentiveness to relationships. That type of leadership for me gives me the best set of tools to be able to build the world that I want to live in, which again is one of collaboration, shared values, and the shared meeting of needs that's really based on compassion for one another and our experiences. I also know from my dear colleagues that you're involved with an initiative called Communities of Care. So Communities of Care, for our listeners, it's a five-year initiative that supports collaborative approaches to well-being in the Houston metropolitan area. It focuses on children and youth of color and their families. And the goal is to positively transform the spaces where people live, learn, work, play, and pray. And Communities of Care is funded by the Hogg Foundation for Mental Health, and we at Prevention Institute coordinate the initiative. So, Dr. Richard, what connects the work that you have been doing? You said you do research, you do community engagement, you're a relative newcomer to this justice reform work in Harris County. What connects all of this work together and connects the public safety work with the mental health and well-being work that you do with communities of care? 
I think at the heart of it is a focus on addressing and engaging historically excluded groups. That we know that is one of the challenges and one of the consequences of systemic racism is that there are people who've just been left out of the decision-making process are excluded from the table. And so one of the big pieces of this, just like the Prevention Institute's Communities of Care is really focused on historically excluded groups. And for us in this work and in the work of one of the collaboratives that I support, DREAM 77021, is bringing you to the table. And not just at the table to hear what we're doing, not just at the table to do some storytelling, but at the table to really inform this work and participate in the decision-making processes. Being able to really focus on engage in historically excluded groups. For me, this work is very much entwined. And now the coalition is working with Communities of Care Dream 77021 Collaborative to really build this leadership track for young people to be able to get engaged in the coalition, but also not just get engaged, but really exercise some leadership and really define a space where that leadership is honored and that leadership is situated within the coalition. Many members from the Dream 77021 Collaborative attend our coalition meetings, and we share learnings and practices across our work to really make sure that we're connecting the dots. What else would you like to share with our listeners today? I just want to share that I very much understand how emotionally taxing this work is. I think I said that I'm new to my former involvement in youth justice reform, but I am the daughter of a formerly incarcerated mother and father. I am the sister of a currently incarcerated brother. I am the niece of formerly incarcerated uncles. I am the mother of a formerly incarcerated youth. And so I very much understand that we do this work because we have some very profound experiences that make it necessary for us to make sense of what we're experiencing. I want to acknowledge how emotionally taxing this work is. And so we've got to create work where there is a shared concern and care for one another. While in the midst of this work, we really demonstrate to one another the world we want to live in. And the reason why I say this is because this work is very much protracted and it requires a long-term commitment that many times must and will have to happen across our lives. And so we've got to create sustainability, not just for the organizations, but for ourselves, so that we keep the attention and we keep in our heart the values that we want to bring forth and that we do so in a way that serves us. So I I just want to really just tee up and say that at the end of this day, we do this work because we care about young people and we care about their families. But in doing that work, we must demonstrate and create coalitions and organizations and groups and practices that communicate and care for one another. Your message is loud and clear and received by me, and I know it will be received by our listeners as well. 
It's been so uplifting to talk with you today, Dr. Richards. I want to thank not only you, Dr. Richards, but every single person who worked in Harris County to make the fund a reality, to make all of the changes that led up to the creation of the fund a reality, and who are doing things large and small toward that vision of communities being cared for, communities' needs being met. So a special thanks, like you said, to people like yourself and others who have been directly impacted by the harms of incarceration. Thank you so much for your leadership, for your wisdom. What a gift for your time and for your generosity in speaking with me today. Thank you. Thanks to our audience for joining us for this episode of Moving Upstream. And thanks to the Langeloth Foundation for making this episode possible. To learn more about this show, visit our website at preventioninstitute.org. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback about the podcast. Find us on Twitter. We're at Prevention Inst. That's Prevention, I-N-S-T.